we present the news quiz with your chairman, Simon Hoggart. Welcome again to the news quiz. Before we start tonight's show, here's a small but important announcement. After MPs this week compared the BBC with Enron, the corporation wishes to stress the absolute integrity and veracity of its accounting procedures. In accordance with those procedures, we now present to the three billion people gathered here at the Royal Albert Hall <laughs> our guests Elvis, King Herod, Lord Voldemort, and Alan Corrin. <laughs> and now, here's your host... Alistair Campbell. Thank you, Harriet, for sexing me up there. <laughs> we start with a listing seen on Thursday. C-Facts, read by Harriet Cass. Page 104, new data shows violent crime on rise. Page 105, Blunkett hails encouraging trend. <laughs> Thanks to Peter Dewhurst of Troon for that. Let's meet the teams now. Please welcome, first on my right, Francis Ween and Linda Smith. Them on my left, Jeremy Hardy and newcomer Eddie Mayer. Francis, who was not ashamed to be caught in Congress with the President of the USA? Well, this is rather serious. It's about this, um, this creepy old man from America who's lured Tony Blair into his chat room. And, um... <laughs> Uh, Blair's completely infatuated with him, I'm afraid to say. He's um, flown over to America to be with Bush. Uh, <laughs> but not for long, because uh, it's then, I think, Tokyo and Beijing and various other places where he's immensely popular, apparently, in these places. I think he may well not come back unless he's extradited, uh, because over here he's rather less popular. People seem to have gone off all this, um, <laughs> trust me, uh, performance, and um, uh, they don't like him anymore in Britain. I do, but nobody else does. I, I didn't like him before, but as of this week, because he invited me to a party at number 10, I've decided he's a good egg, really. <laughs> so I'm his last supporter. He thought you were Ian Duncan Smith, and he wants you to stay. <laughs> well, well, it's odd, odd you should say that, because uh, I spent most of this week going to parties to celebrate Ni Michael Foote's 90th birthday, and at yet another one uh, on Wednesday night, I was standing next to Alistair Campbell, and a photographer from the Daily Mail came up and said, Oh, can I get a picture of you together? And um, Alistair Campbell put his arm around my shoulder and grinned and said, Yes, I don't think Duncan Smith and I have ever been photographed. A bit of a scoop for you. And the photographer said, Yeah, it is. <laughs> I, uh, I imagine the Daily Mail would run that picture with um, Alistair Campbell and Ian Duncan Smith meet. House prices plummet. <laughs> <laughs> Tony Blair has started a rapid tour of the world with a brief stopover in Washington. Mr. Blair delivered a historic address to both houses of the U.S. Congress. Historic because he'd pinched it from Winston Churchill, Margaret Thatcher, and a 12-year-old thesis written by an American student. <laughs> After his stopover in Washington, Mr. Blair flies to Tokyo to begin a tour of the Far East, taking in Japan, South Korea, Beijing, Shanghai, and Hong Kong. The live album will be available next month. <laughs> Linda. Examinations as a method of testing may soon be a thing of the past. Discuss. Ah. This, this is the proposed scrapping of A-levels, uh, and they'll be replaced with some kind of a, a diploma, uh, a sort of a thing. So some sort of um, a document that, that, that's a bit broader than A-level results, that sort of talks about all the things that, that the kid might be good at there, you know, social skills and any little interest they might have. And I think it sounds quite a good idea, really. Probably a lot better than the document I left school with, with the words, has contributed little to school life. I only hope her attitude changes in the future. 
Yes, that's a great thing to go out into the world with, isn't it, Jed Lester, you evil old camel? But, <laughs> I would have to say that, sadly, my attitude hasn't changed <laughs> and has provided me with a pretty good living. Rather better than the little typing job that I'm sure you had in mind for me. Uh, I don't know why they just don't scrap school altogether. It's a complete waste of time, in my opinion. What's the point of it? I, did, I don't know how many years I did of geography. I can't get from here to Euston. I, I spent 20 years colouring maps of the world. South America and its produce, colouring little tubs of palm oil and maize, whatever the hell that is. Not maize, it seems... It, yeah, maize just it comes from everywhere, goes everywhere, then you never see it, do you? <laughs> Maize. It's corn. Maize is corn. Well, why do they call it maize? <laughs> because it's French. <laughs> our exams are, all exams prove, because people say, oh, there's no point reviling within two years of the exam. If you don't know it now, there's no point doing any last minute stuff. All you know when you walk into the exam room is what you read in the lavatory five minutes before walking <laughs> If you get distracted and start looking at the walls, you go in and write down, play toilet tennis, see other wall as a major cause of the First World War. <laughs> a working party on education has called for an end to traditional exams. Parents have complained that too many tests for their children meant they worried about their becoming failures. It was far too early in their lives to decide that their future lay in teaching. <laughs> You'll get a plague of nits for that, Simon. <laughs> Eddie, welcome to the news quiz. Thank you. Listen to this. Where were you? Why do opponents think David Blunkett is mistaken about ID? Oh, the government's hummed and hard about ID cards over the years. Yes, we want them. No, we don't. We want them to be cards so you can claim benefits. So, no, we don't. And I think the latest proposal, as I understand it, is that we, there will be compulsory ID cards. We'll all have to have them. But to placate those critics, it will be an offence to carry them. It's compulsory to keep them at home. <laughs> you have to go to a special club, like gun clubs, where they're kept locked in an arsenal. <laughs> well, all the crime figures, which you know, came out this week, and they're up substantially and down substantially, <laughs> indicate that the only kind of fraud that is down is identity fraud. And the government's disappointed by that. So if everyone has an identity card, there's, there's so much more opportunity for theft. Well, to stop this identity fraud, they're also going to introduce optional IDS cards as well. <laughs> Which um, uh, say this is to certify that the bearer is not Ian Duncan Smith. <laughs> it's basically a tax on going outside, isn't it? And people say, well, we had them in the war. Well, in the war, it was a little piece of cardboard that said, this is Mr. Wilkins, he's not a German spy. <laughs> This will be some very high-tech thing that's got a genetic blueprint of your entire history that says, this is Mr. Wilkins, he may not be a German spy, but he's got an inherited heart defect, his sister's an anarchist, and he once took a video back to Blockbuster one day late in 1986. <laughs> I think it would be nice, though, if we could have, you know, new identity cards with a whole new identity. Well, you can, you get them in the old Kent Road for a hundred quid, Lily. <laughs> 
I don't know. I was thinking of something a bit more romantic. I think I'd like to be Olga, the glamorous Russian spy. <laughs> David Blunkett has promised that the proposed ID cards will not be used to discriminate against asylum seekers because if he gets his way, there won't be any asylum seekers. <laughs> Jeremy, what's this week's choice statement about the NHS? Oh, this is um, John Reed who's a cabinet bruiser, which just means he's a bit squat, ugly and unpleasant. Um, <laughs> therefore gets to be called a bruiser. John Reid's idea is we'll all be able to choose what hospital we go to. And already this happens, because I've got three big hospitals near me, and I go and see the GP, and if something needs doing, he says, well, where do you want me to refer you to? And you think, do you know what, doctor? I haven't the faintest idea. That's why I come and see a doctor. <laughs> I really don't know how to choose between hospitals because it's not exactly as if we're all looking for different things when we go to hospital, mm -hmm. is it? Not, you don't say, oh, well, I always go to Bart's. I mean, the, sur you know, the surgery's not great, but it's the atmosphere. <laughs> He'll also give you the choice of whether you want to be referred to as doctor or not, which he's started himself. Dr. John Reed? Yes. Because he's not a doctor, is he, really? Well, he's a kind of doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Henry Kissinger, Dr. Ian Paisley, it's infallible rule. Any person with a PhD who insists on having the doctor in front of his name. It's not like Dr. John or someone. <laughs> or Count Basie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've, I've heard him referred to as Or the Earl of Grove. <laughs> 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 can't say that on the wireless, Mr. Mayor. You're the voice of five o'clock. Don't worry, he'll cut this out. <laughs> Health Secretary John Reid has announced that NHS patients will be allowed to choose from at least four hospitals when they need an operation. Within two years, all patients will be given a choice about where they want to have the operation, at an NHS hospital or at a real one in Frankfurt. <laughs> we start round two with a cutting from The Guardian's corrections and clarifications. Contrary to what we said in a shortcuts piece, why it's okay to be crap, Ed Grundy and the Archers did not complain that he'd had a crap holiday in Ibiza. He said he'd had a crap holiday in Ayanapa. <laughs> Thanks to Gillian Cordell for sending that in. Francis, why have the Fabians produced It's a Royal Opt-Out? Well, it's a thrilling story, isn't it? There's a new pamphlet out from the Fabian Society. <laughs> well, actually, the only exciting thing about this, they've uh, they set up a commission on the monarchy, and it was chaired by a man called Mr Bean. Rather nice, didn't it? Um, and Mr Bean's recommendations... Uh, Fairly uncontroversial. Uh, he says that um, I think royals should be allowed to marry Catholics if they want to, and the Queen should be allowed to retire if she wants to, and Prince Edward should be allowed to appear on Celebrity Big Brother if he must. <laughs> that sort of thing. All of which are outlawed by the Act of Settlement 1701, but they're suggesting that should be done away with. And when they said it must be more representative of the country, um, and so we must have a more multi-ethnic royal family. I mean, this the German Queen with a Greek husband. And an older son and heir who comes from the planet Zog. I mean, how much more money? <laughs> but that's what they want, anyway. The Fabians, as if anyone cares what the Fabians think about the royal family, have somehow managed to smuggle their way into the newspapers. <laughs> the Fabian Society calls for changes in the way the monarchy is run. The report recommends the throne should be passed on to the eldest child, not just the eldest son. So, whichever way you look at it, the jug-eared old plant warrior still gets the tiara. <laughs> Linda, listen to this. Don't worry. Be happy.
Linda, who's been recruited to say, don't worry, be happy about delivering a eulogy? Oh, the, yes, this is a, a poet laureate, the rather unpleasantly named Andrew Motion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure In Memoriam would be so popular <laughs> if he were called Alfred Lord Pooh. <laughs> but anyway, the poet laureate... <laughs> has been called in by the co-op to help uh, put together a, a booklet about delivering the eulogy uh, at funerals. Because uh, in the past, it used to always be the vicar who did that. And he didn't know the person from Adam, so he'd be there sort of going, well, this, this fellow, uh, Harry, was it? no, Larry, Larry, um, will be uh, great, great, no, slightly, slightly missed. Slightly, <laughs> he was marvellous, very generous, no, no, very, throw me a bone here, someone, what is he? Um, very mean, very mean man. Uh, and on and on like this. So now, you know, members of the family, people who actually knew the deceased do the eulogy, they get a bit nervous, so they're, they're putting out guidelines and the, the poet laureate's helping with it. Because in this co-op book, they've got um, a few samples of eulogies and they say you might like to um, copy some of these. But they're all things like Earl Spencer's speech at Princess Di's funeral. So you're then meant to um, go to the funeral in Budley Saucerton and say, the whole world is watching in shock and grief. <laughs> we have lost the people's princess. Which is not much use at your Uncle Ernie's funeral. <laughs> The, the minister or the priest always does have to talk people up. Uh, I went to a um, Catholic funeral once, and the, the priest was going, so we say farewell to Barry, who was, of course, throughout his life, hard-working, pure, decent, honest, and chaste. And all his friends are thinking, blimey, who have they got in there? <laughs> the family funeral uh, in my family... Someone was being offered a little memento, you know, to take of the deceased, sort of, you know, just, a, you know, some little trinket. And uh, this woman said, uh, oh, no, no, I c oh, oh, all right, then, just, I'll just take a little something to remind me of Betty. That boiler's quite new, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think those radiators are heavy? <laughs> the poet laureate, Andrew Motion, has been recruited by the co-op to advise bereaved friends and relatives how to write a suitable eulogy. Motion's poetry has always been rooted in his own life, which is why it's so memorably tedious. <laughs> Eddie, can you tell me a couple of things about holidays? Psychologists, and no good news story ever starts with that, psychologists have found that couples, when they go on holiday, uh, fall out. Um, they've spent 50 weeks of the year with their partner, they don't talk to them, they don't communicate with them in any way, shape or form. But when they go on holiday, they have to. And they find it's a deeply unpleasant experience. <laughs> and, and amusingly, the, the psychologist who came up with this startling finding suggests uh, 12 ways of making your holiday with this appalling partner better. <laughs> Which seemed to me to be the wrong way around. Don't fix the two weeks of the year that... that don't work. Fix the other 50 weeks. <laughs> uh, so that's it. No, uh, you're supposed to find out um, whether your partner likes going to hot places, 
uh, whether they like activity holidays. Uh, basically, find out whether you're compatible, which I would have thought would be a, a more appropriate question before you start living with your partner. Yes, I think that really the introduction of the single currency is responsible for a lot of this. <laughs> because I think, you know, there's not a lot to do on holiday. And before that, the first week could be taken up with deciding <laughs> how much things would be in English money. <laughs> now people have to talk to each other and think, oh my God, is this the rest of my life? <laughs> Dr. Glenn Wilson conducted the survey which shows that 51% of holidaymakers said it was their husband, wife, or long-term friend that ruined their holiday. But it serves them right for going with all three of them at the same time. <laughs> Jeremy, who shouldn't have let money go to their head? Um, money go to their head? Mm. Do you know what, Simon? I reckon in the morning when you've had a good night's sleep, all these questions that are troubling you so much won't seem so important. <laughs> During that convenient moment there, it taught me enough time for Eddie to write down head teacher nicked 50 grand. <laughs> so this will be Colleen McCabe, it would. I think, who was a head teacher. And she embezzled 50 grand of the school funds. She spent it on shoes, mostly on shoes. Well, shoes, but there was a big feature in the paper about her, the glamorous lifestyle that was funded by this fraud, and it had a picture of Clark's shoes, <laughs> which said she blew thousands on designer shoes at her favourite shop, Clark's. <laughs> Actually, she's the head of a Catholic school. She was an ex-nun. Making up for lost time. <laughs> Awful lot of shouting. <laughs> It'd be a whole series, couldn't it? Where nuns embezzle. <laughs> These are a few of my favourite things. <laughs> Holidays in mortar and sandals from Clark's. It's Colleen McCabe, head of St John Rigby College, who stole £500,000 from her school to fund a life of designer jewellery and trips on the Orient Express. Ms McCabe was described in court as manipulative, power-mad and conducting a reign of terror. She's now first in line to replace Alistair Campbell. <laughs> we start round three with an item from the Daily Telegraph. An American lecturer, Richard Rodriguez, has set a record with four days on a roller coaster in Germany, sleeping, eating, and going to the lavatory at speeds up to 75 miles an hour. <laughs> Thanks to Dr. Douglas Inglis of Cardiff for that. Francis, listen to this. hear that often these days, do you? Absolutely. How do they get the artillery into the concert hall? That's what I want to know. It was last performed at the opening theatre of Baghdad. <laughs> Next to the Museum of Rubble. 
Francis, who's a noisy boy, then? It's a cockatiel. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a woman in I don't know, Northumberland or somewhere who takes in stray birds, and the RSPCA gave her a cockatiel they'd found wandering around a confused state. I think it's called Spiky or something. Yes. Um, but it's driving her to distraction because at four o'clock every morning, this bird suddenly stands to attention and whistles its way through the 1812 overture. <laughs> <laughs> its little claws on the perch go boom, boom, boom. Like but anyway, she, she's desperate to get rid of this thing, and she's appealed to the owner to come forward and said, there must be someone out there who's missing a cockatiel that sings the 1812 Overture at four in the morning every day. And actually, I don't think the previous owner is missing it at all, oddly enough. <laughs> There's another bird story uh, in the papers this week about um, British songbirds having to sing louder. They've had to make their little bird song louder and higher. Now, so they're all they're going, yes, I'm on the tree! <laughs> Spiky the Cockadeel wakes her owners up at 4am every morning by whistling excerpts from the 1812 overture. Elaine Redhead of County Durham provides a temporary home for unwanted birds. And she's desperate to find someone who can take Jerry Halliwell off her hands. <laughs> Linda, why are Scots paleontologists celebrating a monster find? Oh, well, allegedly, these paleontologists have found the remains of what may be the original Loch Ness monster. But this is a classic archaeological find in that someone stumbled over an old fishbone or something. They found like, a fossilised vertebrate of something. And from this, they've now decided that, oh, yes, this proves that there was not a 35-foot, warm-blooded, carnivorous raptor with a good sense of humour who enjoyed brass rubbing and country walks and uh, who once appeared on the dinosaur television show, Can't Evolve, Won't Evolve. <laughs> All from this little bone. It's rubbish. And found right at the start of the tourist season, which is... Nice. Amazing. <laughs> oh, you old cynic. <laughs> no heart. Thank you. <laughs> Retired scrap metal merchant General McSorley has unearthed the remains of a 150 million year old sea reptile on the shores of Loch Ness. While millions flock to Scotland in search of the mysterious beast, few true Scots see any point in trying to catch the creature. They'd never find a deep fat fryer big enough to fit it in. <laughs> Eddie, what's old English origins are past a joke? Lasagna is British, or maybe it's English. I'm not quite sure. And this has been proved beyond reasonable doubt uh, because a, a cookbook has been found which hasn't been read for many hundreds of years. It's Robin Cook's memoirs. <laughs> or it was found in Delia Smith's dungeon. I'm not sure. I'm not suggesting she has a dungeon. It's just an expression. Uh, so... <laughs> commonly used expression, though, is it? <laughs> so... Mind you, though, I wouldn't put it past Delia. <laughs> I, I think there's something subtly evil. <laughs> I imagine those little freckly hands, if you, if you joined up those freckles, they'd spell 666. recipe does sound like one of hers, doesn't it? Because basically it's just pasta and cheese is what it is. It's like lasagna without the lasagna part of it, really, isn't it? Because 
her recipes. I've got one of her recipes for chili con carne. And there's all the ingredients. It was in that last book of hers, How to Recognise Water. <laughs> and there's all the ingredients. Mints, onions, red kidney beans, chilies, brackets optional. <laughs> Note, English cooks may like to substitute a sponge cake at this point. <laughs> But we know it's a very, very, very old recipe because it contains carbohydrates and no one's using that. <laughs> Researchers are claiming that lasagna is a British invention after finding a suspiciously similar recipe for something called lasagne in the 14th century cookbook, The Formi of Curry-E. Lasagne can now sit alongside other dishes once thought to be Italian, such as spaghetti croydonese. <laughs> Jeremy, why are ducks washed up this week? Oh, this is all these things that fall off ships. Apparently loads of things, statistically, loads of things fall off ships. And these rubber ducks fell off a ship and ended up in Newfoundland or New England or Newcastle or somewhere, Kings Lynn. And uh, it's important because it shows interesting things about both the currents and also how do rubber ducks know to swim <laughs> to land. <laughs> and not just loll about in the ocean waiting for children to play with them. <laughs> um, but loads of things, including Nike trainers. Loads of Nike trainers fall off ships and the captain makes 12-year-old pearl drivers go down and rescue them. What? I thought they fell off the back of lorries. Well, yeah. But I was talking then. Sorry. But, uh, <laughs> never mind. Never mind. But, uh, yeah, loads of things fall off ships, including rubber ducks. There you go. <laughs> A consignment of rubber ducks is expected to wash up any day on the coast of New England after a decade at sea. It's thought to be the biggest number of washed-up plastic creatures on a beach since Baywatch was axed. <laughs> Before we reveal the final scores, let's hear the cuttings the teams have brought along. Francis. Simon, this is from the Daily Telegraph the other day. A shoplifter who tried to conceal a cooked chicken in his underpants was sentenced to one day's detention by Lowestoft magistrates yesterday. Stephen McAteer, 46, offered to put the chicken back when caught at a local Tesco supermarket. Linda. Uh, thanks to Lynn Taylor uh, for this item from the Wantage Herald. It's an advert for the Odeon Senior Screen Club, Oxford. The Quiet American, 15, contains moderate action violence and one sex scene. Over 55s only. <laughs> Uh, this one is from Gavin Williams, who claims this is from the Wantage and Grove Herald, which is the international edition of the <laughs> Wantage Herald, obviously. In an obituary notice for former Chelsea United footballer Ronald Fox, we mistakenly gave his nickname as Hippie. It should have read Flippy. We apologise for any embarrassment. <laughs> Thank you all. Now let's look at the final score. Francis and Linda have lots and lots of points, and Eddie and Jeremy have exactly the same number. <laughs> and before we leave you, here's an item from the Market Raisin Mail. An amendment has been laid in the House of Lords to Clause 70 of the new Sexual Offences Bill. Amendment 343 reads, page 32, line 1, leave out genitals and insert penis. <laughs> Back to mine. 
Taking part in the news quiz were Francis Ween, Linda Smith, Eddie Mayer and Jeremy Hardy. The chairman was Simon Hoggart and the news was read by me, Harriet Cass. The chairman's script was written by Dave Cohen, George Poles, Lucy Clark and Simon Littlefield. And the producer was Simon Nichols.